Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. There are a lot of funny and strange characters on the hit HBO drama, Succession. For my money, though, none of them funnier or stranger than Connor Roy. He's the oldest of the Roy children on the show, half-brother to the three younger ones. And Connor is kind of a doofus. He falls in love with an escort. He bankrolls her disastrous off-Broadway play. He runs for president. And never at any point does he earn even an ounce of respect from a single family member. And that probably isn't a coincidence because Connor is the only sibling with no interest in running the Roy family business. My guest Alan Ruck plays Connor Roy. He's so great, funny and weird when the scene calls for it, but also behind the bluster and the rants about biodynamic wine and tax policy, we see a vulnerability. It makes Connor weirdly one of the most relatable characters on the show. Now, you might know Alan Ruck from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He played Cameron, the best friend with the Ferrari. He also had parts in movies like Speed, Twister, and Cheaper by the Dozen, and in TV shows like Spin City and The Exorcist. Now, before we get into my conversation with Alan Ruck, let's hear something from Succession. His character, Connor Roy, is running for president, but the campaign never takes off. And in this scene, he's at a party with the rest of the family. Greg, his cousin, asks him how he's polling. Nice. What what are you at now? Solid. Still holding. No, one percent. It's just the fear is in these last days, uh, it could get squeezed. Squeezed down? Mm Mm-hmm. From one, because that's the lowest number. Uh, no, there's, you know, decimals. You know, they're, they're saying that I could need to get aggressive in certain media markets because both sides are trying to squeeze my percent. That's greedy. When they have all the other percents. I know. But then it gets awfully spendy to get aggressive. Like how much? Like uh, another 100 mil. 100 million. Wow. I mean, and, and so what would you get for that? I mean, could you win? Good Lord, no. No, no. Uh, that won't move the needle, no. Uh, the hope is that would maintain maintain my percent. Okay, and for your percent, you get... He gets a place in the conversation. Which is great, because conversation's important to mm-hmm. be inside of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Ruck, welcome to Bullseye. Hey, thanks for having me. I love the idea of my percent. That's not nothing, you know. I mean, that's that's at least a million people. So I mean, that's that's, that's that, Howard Schultz territory. That's a, that's the that's big stuff. Quite a following. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. guy had to invent coffee or whatever to get his one percent. <laughs> Did he? Yeah, I think I don't know. Is that what Starbucks <laughs> is? You invented coffee, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was just mud before he arrived, and he he made it elegant. Yeah. <laughs> So you sort of backed into the audition for Succession. It's not like it was a a big scheme of yours. And you wandered into the audition room relatively unprepared because you just hadn't had the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I had been working. I was working in Chicago with Gina Davis on the TV version of The Exorcist. And I would fly home 
to LA uh, for long weekends. And my wife was shooting a show for ABC where they worked like 16 hour days. It was brutal. And she was just played out because we had help. Uh, but then at night she was single parent and j just really, really exhausted. And you're both working actors. So you're yeah. both like to have children and with the, with the travel and the bonkers hours of acting. It's nutty. You yeah. have to kind of like do this complicated coordination. And sometimes it, it doesn't work exactly as you would like it to. Cause sometimes you are working at the exact same time, sometimes in different cities, uh, or even different countries, and you just have to, you know, try to keep it together. So, you know, thank God for uh, FaceTime and Zoom and all these things. But anyway, I, I had come home for the weekend. I was going to fly back uh, late uh, Monday afternoon to go back to Chicago. And uh, my wife said, I want you to go with me and Larkin, our little boy, to Mommy and Me music class Monday morning. And I said, I'm there. And, and this that, is like when this sounds like the kind of request that matters. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, as, as Brian Cox has often said, happy wife, happy life. And um, I, I, I believe in that. Pretty much right after she said, I want you to go to Mommy and Me music class, my uh, manager, Mark, Mark Teitelbaum, called and said, I've got an audition for you for an HBO show. And I was like, oh. And I said, Mireille, um, audition for an HBO show and she burst into tears. She just, she was just, you know, really vulnerable. And I said, Mark, I can't do it. I gotta, I gotta go to this thing with my wife and my baby boy. And, um, we went you know, we banged on drums for an hour and you have to leave your phone outside. And I came out and there were emails and, and text messages and uh, voice messages. And they all just said, before you leave town, just go to Adam McKay's house. Okay. And so, um, it's happened to all of us. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so I did, and I really didn't know the material. And, uh, I told Adam, I said, I hadn't really had the time to get familiar with this. And he said, well, you know, the situation, right? Yeah. He said, make it up. Just whatever comes out of your mouth. And I read with Francine Maisler and she read the actual words and I made up whatever seemed appropriate. And, uh, the, the biggest clue I got from that uh, session was the the line that at that point was addressed to Logan where Connor says there's this job I want it's called president of the United States and I said to Adam okay clearly he's putting the old man on and Adam was like oh no no he's deadly serious and so that's when I knew big window big clue as to who this guy was and what kind of world he was living in um, and that I, this is I wanted to ask you about this specifically, right? Because like one of the things about succession is that the characters are all from space. They all other than the paterfamilias, they're all they're all from space. None of them has lived in a norm any kind of normal life. Right. But and they are in many ways blinkered idiots, but they are also totally not like they have such an odd mix of competency and incompetency. Right. Well, I mean, if you if you look at the character of Tom, even though he's, you know, like a groveling sycophant, um, and sometimes, you know, a little martinet with uh Greg, and if you look at Greg, who, you know, started out by uh working in the amusement park and throwing up inside his costume because he was loaded. I mean, 
even though they have all these character defects, you might say, because they didn't grow up with all that privilege. In the long run, I think they're going to be better off, much better off than uh, the siblings, because uh, they don't know anything else. There was that. There was that um, uh, scene where Logan asks Roman. I can't remember. I guess it was the second season. How much does a gallon of milk cost? Why are you asking me this? You know, that's you know, and it's just, he was trying to get him back in touch with just like life, like that most people have to deal with, and um, so they never wanted for ev- anything. They just never had any affection. They never had uh, uh, what you might call a loving parent who was just in their corner no matter what. Uh, Certainly not from their mother. The kids had Caroline and she's a dragon lady, you know, and then uh, Logan is so wrapped up in the business. And again, if you don't, if you don't produce something that's valuable to the family name, it's like, well, you, you don't have, you don't have any value. Um, so all the money, none of the love. And that's how, what shaped these guys. There's a real signature moment, uh, in the pilot of the show where, uh, you bring a birthday gift of sourdough starter, yeah, which is like your character is the eldest, the eldest sibling and you're a half sibling to the other ones. Yeah. And so you are of this world in the sense that you believe yourself to be capable of being president of the United States with no basis. Um, But you're also a visitor to this other closed section of the family and you're completely different from them. Yeah. I, um, I always felt that uh, my own backstory was that Logan divorced Connor's mother when Connor was eight or nine years old and old enough to know that his father was a titan and that when he was with his dad, things were magical in doors opened everywhere. People bowed down and then that was snatched away from him. And he was stuck living with uh, a woman who had uh, psychological challenges and was uh, chemically addicted and in and out of (laughs) um, institutions. And so it was not a happy boyhood. So he created um, an acceptable reality for himself and the money was there to do that. Uh, But he's always wanted to be accepted, loved by the old man, but by the siblings as well. And um, it's just not happened. And um, he's always been a joke to them. I mean, even when he was, you know, a decent guy and taking them on camping trips and whatever because Logan couldn't be bothered, uh, you know, he was always just dismissible. And um, so he's always been like sort of on the outside of the glass with his nose pressed up against it, knocking, hi, guys, you know. And um, he has no friends. Connor has no friends. He only has these people. He has Willa now, thank God. But uh, he, you know, as we saw in the episode the other night, I mean, he tells, basically, he he tells uh, his brothers and his sister that I've come to expect this from you people. And, you know, I don't need, I don't need your love but it's not entirely true. <laughs> well, he's the sweetest of them, I think. Because yeah, he, he has this sort of wistful 
dreamer quality to him. Yeah, there's this, <laughs> to his evil venality. Well, I mean, he's just as as um, entitled as the others, yeah. you know, and he he has no idea what regular people have to go through, and it it just he doesn't have any. But you get the uh, impression that, that it, to some extent, he doesn't have any idea what any people have to go through. No, I mean, <laughs> like because he he's, just he's, is so sui generis that. You know, I think that Logan, uh, you know, he says things like, Dad, I need another hundred million uh, for my campaign. Connor has money. He just doesn't want to spend his own money. You know, he's like, Dad, <laughs> you know. Can you help me out? And it's like, oh, I blew, I blew all that money on Willis Play, and you know, I'm a little uh, land rich, cash poor. Not true. He's got a ton of money. It, they all have a ton of money. They just want more, and they don't want to spend any of their own money if they can help it. You're from kind of the the furthest thing from the Roy family. You grew up in Cleveland, and your father worked in a pharmaceutical factory or in a in a factory that powdered things in general is that true yeah he worked for a pharmaceutical job house that was called strong cobb and arner i guess those were the big three back in the day and they it in was the, in the mortar and pestle business i i think that's where it started yeah um he said when he started there in 1949 there was actually still a pill machine because pills are different from capsules or tablets a pill is just rolled out dough and then uh, it's rolled out into like a long spaghetti string and there's a little guillotine uh, uh thing that goes chunk 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 and just chops them into little pills and i said what was that for he said well it was for a veterinarian a veterinary medicine and um, the man that ran the pill machine was like 90 and uh, as soon as he passed away, they got rid of the pill machine. It's like they're they're keeping it on for him, I guess, which is you know a nice gesture. But he or uh, just no one else knew how to use it. I think that's probably it. But my dad was not uh, a Walter White. He was a Jesse Pinkman. He was the guy on the floor giving the recipe, like you know, forty gallons of this, eighty pounds of this, you know, and he was mixing up huge batches of everything, like. Um, barbiturates and kids vitamins and it was whatever the order came through that's what he did did you think that uh a creative career was available to you like was it something that you dreamed about when you were 12 right about then um my parents uh really believed in the arts my dad made drugs but he was a singer he sang in um like community choirs and church choirs and uh my mom was a school teacher and um just they were both uh firm believers in education and they um they just took us to plays the cleveland art museum i don't know if it's still the same way now but it was free you just had to get to the museum and then it was, you know, no admission. Cultural institutions were one of the things that the titans of industry of the early 20th century were good at. That's right, because, you know, whoever started that in Cleveland, Ohio, could brag to her lady friends in New York City, well, what have you done lately? I started an art museum, you know, and that's so we all benefited from that. Um, and um, my house was right down the street from my high school and... Uh, you could go see a, a play at the high school for, I think, a quarter. And so we would just do that. We didn't have a lot of money, so we did those things that we could manage. And um, we saw a lot of plays, went to concerts, 
And um, so there was always music playing in my house. You sang in a chorus, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, my older sister and I were both, uh, she actually played the violin. Um, and so she was also in the orchestra, but we both sang in, in choirs all through school. So, yeah, I, I actually, once I decided on it, I think my parents were thrilled that I had found something because um, I had been a really good student up until puberty. Then <laughs> I, it was over. I just couldn't concentrate on anything and not athletic. So I think they were just thrilled that I found something that I loved and I found out I could do. So they were, they were behind me 100%, which how, I know a lot how of kids old are we, then. How old are we talking about? Well, I had watched my sister, older sister, do plays in high school. And somehow I just, I kind of thought that I could do it, you know. Um, and when I was in the sixth grade, we did a, a, a little school, you know, in-classroom production of um, um, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And I was Ichabod. And I, I got a really good response from the kids in the class. And I was like, oh, yeah, I like this. And then I got to high school, and there were acting classes and play production classes and uh, three productions a year. It was a pretty good program. And um, I just auditioned for that first play, and I found out I could do it, and I just never let go of it. We've got even more with Alan Ruck. When we come back from a break, I will talk to him about the time he spent out of work, which was a not insignificant portion of his career and how not working led him to get sober. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Alan Ruck. He plays Connor Roy on the TV show Succession. He also starred in Ferris Bueller's Day Off and on the TV shows Spin City and The Exorcist. The fourth and final season of Succession is airing right now on HBO. Let's get back into our conversation. Did you like the musical theater experience of putting on a show and earning the attention of the audience? Or did you like the uh, disappearing and pretending to be somebody else slash sometimes not having to be yourself part of it. That's, that's still uh, really enjoyable because um, if you play someone who's a complete bastard, hopefully you get all that junk out of yourself at work and you can go home and be a proper human. Um, so that's always been fun. I, I, you know, it was fun to be on stage in those early days and realizing that I had some little bit of power, you know, um, people were watching me and if I did my job right, they would keep watching me. And, uh, I love that attention. I love that feeling. I, I, I felt empowered, you know, I just felt like, yeah, I found out who I was or I found out who this part of me is. So that was all, all that stuff was, uh, I'm not really, um, uh, a disappearing kind of actor. I think I'm, I'm mostly, some people say that, you know, there's, there's chameleons and there's personality actors. I guess I'm more of a personality actor. Uh, sometimes I feel, it feels like I'm just Alan in different clothes, but you know, that's okay. I mean, sometimes you're the jerk version and sometimes you're the sweet yeah, version. Just like, you're usually a sweeter jerk and a jerkier <laughs> sweetheart. Oh but. yeah. That's a jerky sweetheart. That's a, then, uh, Good title for my memoirs. Um, but if you look at somebody like Jack Nicholson, you know, I mean, brilliant 
movie, American Treasure, really. Um, he's almost always just played Jack Nicholson, but he's played every note, uh, you know, every color in, in that rainbow. He's played every conceivable version of Jack Nicholson. Uh, I remember one time that he did a character in uh, Preetzi's Honor, but that's the only time I can remember he actually like, tried a different voice and, you know. But um, so, I mean, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Did you move to Chicago thinking you were going to be a theater actor, capital T, capital A? <laughs> like, were you like, I can finally indulge my passion for Shakespeare kind of thing? Um, I did some Shakespeare at college. I did one Shakespearean play in high school. I did some at college, uh, at university. And um, But you know, what I, like, there's this thing in acting school where just like every teacher goes to you. Every theater teacher I ever had had a part of the class where they said, if the boards are not your blood, then do not pursue this career. Your passion for the stage must take precedence over anything else in your life. Where did you go to school? <laughs> well, yeah, some of the best at UC Santa Cruz, I'll tell oh, you. Yeah, okay, no, that's good. Yeah. Banana slugs, right? School, yeah, school of, school of the Arts. And saying high school is where I had the better theater teachers. That's a nice place to go to college, though, Santa Cruz. It's lovely. It's very yeah. pretty. Um, the weather's nice. Yeah, I mean, there was, there, there you know... There were people that uh, you could say had um, different levels of development, even people who had had professional experience. Some were very good and very open uh, to what this life can be or what it actually winds up being. And some people um, sort of had stunted growth and that sort of thing. Like if you don't, you know, the only real actors are theater actors. And look, this is where most of us start out because most of us don't live in a, a major motion picture center, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. I grew up in Cleveland. There was, you know, there were no opportunities like that. Uh, so it was plays and, um, I enjoyed it and I loved it for a long time. Uh, I enjoy that feeling of feeling the audience out there and um, you do it together. But now I'm older and I, uh, uh, I really love the civility of the motion picture business. <laughs> Are you just talking about craft services or what? That, that, I mean, if craft service is wrong, the movie's going to suck. If theaters didn't, if theater had unlimited red vines, then you'd yeah. be in. <laughs> I might be. I might be. No, it's the eight shows a week thing that um, I just think kind of kicks my uh, I actually haven't done a play for 17 years because the last play I did, I met uh, Mireille, uh, my wife, and um, she was really good in that play. But the best thing for me about that play was that I found her. Um, but I'm not, I, I might never say never. I might do something again, but uh, it would have to be really special. I don't feel driven to get up on stage in front of people. I actually enjoy uh, being in front of a camera. When you were doing theater in your 20s in Chicago, were you playing characters much younger than you? Yeah. Because you looked you looked boyish well into your 30s. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, my first professional play was uh, called Album by a guy named David Rimmer. And it had been... Um, sort of an off-off Broadway hit in New York. And then uh, some guys in Chicago um, talked the New York people into doing a, a Chicago production. Jason Brett and Stuart Oaken, those are the guys that gave me my first job, producers. And um, I aged in that play from 14 to 18. 
and I was 24, playing a 14-year-old. And, you know, people bought it. And um, so I just looked infantile. <laughs> I mean, there's two, there's, it's, there's two sides of that coin, right? One is uh, you could feel trapped in adolescence and, you know, maybe you're out there on stage and you wish ladies in the audience thought you were hot and actually they think you're a little boy and like yeah. those kinds of things. On the other hand, you were probably a lot better at acting than most 15-year-olds and so it's a <laughs> it's a lane. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it was my way in and um, so I got to do that and, and it was, you know, a blessing and a curse because you, you would be in situations like one of the first movies I did, I was working with Johnny Cusack who's 10 years younger than me and we were playing the same age and um, certain people uh, would talk down to us, you know, like we were dumb babies. And um, I found that particularly offensive. Because you know. he was a dumb baby, but you were But older. he was actually not a dumb baby. He was like 16 going on 40. Uh, he, was, he was one of those guys that I needed to go to college to grow up and to like, you know, have parties and, and, and just take the time to grow up. He was one of those kids at 16 and he was ready to go. He was just ready to hit it. Uh, he came from uh, a show business family. His his dad made uh, documentaries, and all the kids were involved in Burn Piven's workshop in in Chicago, and uh, you know, uh, just a really creative uh, and highly literate family. And John was just like, "Well, I don't need. Why would I? Need? He wasn't. He wasn't even convinced he needed to graduate from high school. He was just ready, and he was." You know, because it was a couple years after that he did, uh, maybe one or two years after that he did um, a sure thing, the Rob Reiner picture. And I mean, he was 18 years old and he carried that movie effortlessly, you know, so that's just everybody's different. Everybody's got a different story. But he was, he was, uh, what's the word? He was uh, a, a force of nature. <laughs> I didn't know how old you were when you were in Ferris Bueller, which is like in your late 20s, you're like 28, 29. Yeah. And um, learning about it, I thought two things. One is, I mean, you're so wonderful in the movie uh, that it's very easy to accept you as whatever age you're presenting yourself to be because you're just like, look at this lovely man. Like, look at this guy. What a charmer. What a sweetheart. The other thing I thought is like, this is a, you know, it it wasn't quite the big break then that it might seem to be now. It was, you know, it wasn't a generation-defining film upon its release. It, you know, gained steam. But, like, still, huge job, co-star of a big movie. Yeah. Um, but also, like, you're 29, so you don't get to, like, you didn't get to have a run of being a teen because you were already t t not a teen. Yeah. That, it, not credibly. It, no, I, um, that was like my swan song for, you know, the, the teenage thing. And, you know, I got away with it. Um, but, uh, it, soon after that, people were like, well, no, he's no. And people knew, I mean, in the business, how old I was. So like, no, no, we really need someone who's, you know, a teenager or maybe like 20. 
and here I was like 10 years older. So it just, uh, but you're I, also like a sweet faced 30 year old and what do I was in a weird gap. Right. That's what I mean. It was before, uh, the friends thing kind of happened where it was like, they're 25 and, uh, you know, let's build a show around these, these 20 somethings because the stuff that was, I was auditioning for, they were, uh, it was like, nobody bought me as a lawyer. They're like, nah, he just, nah, he's too young, he's too young, he's too young. And um, so I just, I, I fell into this period where I couldn't seem to get cast. And um, I had a couple of years where I actually didn't work and I was very frustrated. And um, I kind of thought that was it. I thought that was my run. So 1986, you're in Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Big movie, but you're at the very, very far edge cusp of being able to be the thing that is in the movie, right? All these people that are in these John Hughes movies, they got to be that for five years. Because they were that. Right. Yeah. And you're, you've aged out by the time the movie's in theaters. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're in this weird interregnum period, and it got to the point at one point where you moved out to L.A. to work on a TV show. The TV show didn't work. Right. And... You had a kid yeah. and had to s- s- stop working as an actor for a minute. Yeah, I did. I, uh, I'd done this pilot with Nell Carter and everybody thought it was going to go because she had a deal with NBC and the, it was, the pilot just was terrible. It was just terrible. They were trying to figure it out as they went along and it would just, they had one idea and it didn't work and then it just... You know, they all went on to other things, which is great. Uh, but yeah, I was I was broke. I had spent all my money moving uh, my stuff from New York to a, a place out here. And then I thought, well, I got to do something. So I went to a, a, an employment agency. And um, this is how long ago this was. They were like, can you do word processing? <laughs> no. Any office experience whatsoever? No, no. That's when you needed to prove what WPM you had when you went into it. <laughs> yeah. I and, had to do that. When I, when, I, when I was just out of college, I went into a couple of temp agencies. They ne- I never got a gig, but they, they, they put you in a typing test. Right. Like it was a secretarial pool in Mad Men. I wasn't even going to subject myself to that because I, which just would have been humiliating. So they sent me to work at Sears Warehouse in East L.A., um, the big building with the big tower and it's all still there. It's got I the big sign I on it. I don't know if that's the, um, they, cha- they changed it though. Didn't they, s- they sell that to somebody? I don't know. There's a big, beautiful yeah. like deco building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a Sears building in East LA. And, um, it was just, there's like a little railroad system of these cars that come chugging down, like from upstairs, the bigger part of the warehouse to the sorting room. And you, um. This is like for mail order? Yeah. You know, so it's all, all the different bins have numbers on them, like number three, that's Seattle, number four, that's Tacoma, whatever it was, you know, and you would have to take the item and match it to the appropriate bin. And sometimes it would be something that would weigh an ounce, or sometimes it would be a 12 foot long box filled with a swing set that would weigh like 115 pounds. I can um, only imagine that like being there, it's not that you... I mean, maybe you did think that you were better than it, but it's not even that. It's like, it it must be like wondering, wait, before, when I was in a famous movie, yeah, that was a fraud? Well, it just was, you know, a a bucket of cold water that reminded me that um, 
how lucky I had been up until that point. Because I know, I know a number of people who are very talented and they just never got the breaks, you know? So I, I was lucky. And, um, you know, when people win Oscars and so forth, and, and I, I don't remember a lot of them talking about how lucky they have been. You know, they thank the appropriate people and that's, you know, proper. But um, it just was like I... I caught some big breaks. I got a Broadway show. I got a big movie because of the Broadway show. Um, and then, you know, I just ran into some, uh, to a rough patch. And so it was just like, right, this is, um, this is, this is the real world. And that other world is, um, I hope to get back there because it sure was fun, but um, I don't know. I was scared. I was scared that, you know, it might not work. I was. And you were drinking too? Oh. At the time? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did that job. And then I had, um, a couple of, uh, nice jobs come my way, a TV show and a movie while I was at Sears warehouse. And so then I thought I was back in business and then the TV show was only on for one year. And then that movie came and went, and then I was kind of back to square one and I was doing pilot season again. And I had really started drinking in earnest when uh, I started on Biloxi Blues when I moved from Chicago to New York because we just played soldiers and after the show every night we'd go out and just slam beers, you know. So I just started that habit and, um, you know, I I enjoyed it, but it just is a terrible thing for anybody probably, but really bad for me. Um, and I would drink on any occasion. If things were good, I'd drink. If things were bad, I'd drink more. Um and so then um, after that uh, Young Guns 2 and uh, this uh, show I did called Going Places, I was back to square one. And it was like, I just, I need money. I need to do something, anything, any kind of job. And um, I wound up being a bartender at the Red Onion, which I don't think exists anymore. And that was a bad job for me because uh, after my shift was over, I'd park it at the bar and, you know, use up all my tip money. And you had a family at home at the time. Uh, I, I had one kid, my, uh, my ex-wife and uh, Claudia and our daughter, Emma, when she was little. And um, then uh, my manager at the time just called me in on my actual birthday. She said, I want to talk to you about something. I was convinced she was going to drop me, you know. And then she said, I think, uh, I think you've got a drinking problem. And if you think that's true, I know some people you can talk to, so... Um, I was willing to do anything if it would get me a job. So I was like, oh, I, I'll try anything. And um, and it worked out. Was it hard to be humble enough to take care of yourself in that way? Was it hard to like... I just wanted to... I mean, we're supposed to probably keep this some of this anonymous, right? So, But I just... Um, it was just a matter of like, if this is what I need to do to make money then I'm going to do it. And um, so I wasn't happy about it. And uh, uh, right after I decided to stop drinking, I had an audition that took me to New York uh, for the uh, Goodbye Girl, for the musical version of the Goodbye Girl, for to be a replacement. And, um, you know, so I was on my own in New York newly sober, I mean, just like a couple weeks. And um, 
I went out to get a steak one night. <laughs> the table next to me had ordered red, red wine, you know, with their steak. And it was like a Hitchcock uh, glass of red wine that it seemed, you know, uh, uh, like the size of a pitcher. They just seemed amazing and beautiful and powerful. And I, I had a white knucklet through that dinner, you know, and I just ate my steak and I got the hell out of there. So it wasn't, uh, I mean, I think other people have gone through much tougher uh, withdrawals, but um, I just was determined to make this thing go. If I got another chance to make this thing go, I was going to take it. And if that meant don't drink, then don't drink. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I have heard from um, a lot of people in recovery, and it was a huge part of my childhood, especially because my father was in recovery all my childhood mm. and was a single parent, so I went to meetings with him. Um <laughs> is wow. <laughs> i know <laughs> vets meetings too not just any meetings but like one of the things is that uh when it comes to beating addiction you can't like uh beat it by dominating it you know you can't beat it like the way a boxer beats another boxer in the ring no like you have to acknowledge you know the the higher power part of aa takes a lot of forms in other forms of recovery, but like that's about acknowledging that the world is bigger than you are. Right. And that's essential to it. Absolutely. The, the, truthfully, uh, truthfully, all a human being can control is their own behavior. And then maybe at some point you get a hold of your thought process and, and you can start to weed out the crap from your thoughts, but that's maybe the last thing to come. You, you can... You can learn to control your behavior and um, what you say and what you do. And, um, you know, so people turn to uh, sources of power greater than themselves because beyond controlling your own behavior, you have no control over anything in this world. And you just, it's humbling and you just have to just, you know, accept that as true. You don't have to like it. Uh, I don't like it to this day. Uh, not really. But, um, you know, I, I know that, um, well, I think, I think if, if, uh, I hadn't stopped all the time ago, I think I may be dead now. So, uh, it was just, it's all life affirming and it's just, uh, a way to stay on track and, uh, be useful, you know, useful to your family, useful to your kids, useful to your friends, useful to the people that employ you and be dependable, be somebody that they can count on. And that's pretty wonderful. That's, um, that's worth everything. I mean, that's at the heart of being an actor. If you can't be dependable to the other people in a production, whether it's on stage or on screen, What's the point of, I mean, because one person can take down the whole house of cards. Yeah. Well, I, you know, for for somebody uh, in at my level, it could just mean uh, truly screwing up any, any career in a television or motion pictures because, you know, word gets around and um, directors and producers are, are brutally honest with each other. Cause like, what about this guy? And if you say, Oh yeah, good guy, uh, give him a shot. And then he turns out to ruin your show. You're never going to trust that 
producer, that director again, and that could mean they don't get hired. So there, everybody is is very honest about this stuff. And if uh, you're problematic, it gets it's going to get around. Much more with Alan Ruck from Succession. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, it's John Moe, inviting you to listen to Depression Mode with John Moe, where I talk about mental health and the lives we live with all kinds of people, famous writers. David Sedaris, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Movie stars. Jamie Lee Curtis, welcome to Depression Mode. I am happy to be here. Musicians. I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm talking to Amy Mann. Great to talk to you. And song exploders. Rishikesh Hirway, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Everyone's opening up on Depression Mode on Maximum Fun. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Alan Ruck, plays Connor on the HBO show Succession. You ended up working on Spin City, which is basically the greatest job you could ever have, <laughs> which is you're working with a bunch of really, and Spin City is a very good show. It's not a world-changing, you know, it's not a, Cheers, but a very good show that ran for a long time with really great people in it. Yeah. And, like, it's a job, which is sounds like what you really just wanted was, can I please have a job? It was the... Uh, I was 40 years old when I got that, and it was the first time I felt like I had won the lotto because it was because of Michael J. Fox. We knew it was going to run, and um, we had tremendous writers. I mean, really funny people: Bill Lawrence and Gary David Goldberg, and then everybody that was in that writers' room. They're just really, really funny, smart people. Uh, and they gave me that part, which was kind of a license to steal. But I've hung on basically to everyone from Spin, and I feel that same way about Succession. Uh, I just I have I've had a ball working with them, uh, and I, I I'm constantly astonished at how good they are. And you couldn't I mean the writing was so inspiring. The writing is so good, but everybody from word go brought their a game and it was like you could even if you thought about phoning it in you can't because you're just going to get trampled you know so you have to shoot a uh, suit up and show up and and just uh give it everything you got and it, it you know pays dividends i mean the thing about succession is right you're whatever you were you know in your late 50s or whatever when you got cast on this show and you had already had two career-defining jobs, right? You were all—you had been the guy from Ferris Bueller for a while, yeah. And then you were a sitcom guy, yeah, a successful sitcom guy on a good sitcom who did a good job, you know, great, yeah. great work if you can get it, yeah. And you know, maybe you, maybe you get cast on a CSI or a, you know, like you yeah. get some kind of regular job after that, but. You don't necessarily expect that you're going to end up on a succession. You know what I mean? No, not even a little bit. I um, I tell people this, but it's it's true. It's not a joke. I totally coattailed on my wife, uh, Mire Enos, because we got together. We did a play in New York, and uh, we started dating. And she said, but I'm going to move to Los Angeles because my manager says it's time for me to do that. And he was right. And so she came out 
here. And I chased her. And um, casting agents found out that we were together. And they would say, do you know who she's with? She's with Alan. And because they, they kind of forgot about me in a way, because I was a New York guy for a long time. So the LA people, they wouldn't, you know, there was a time when they would fly you across the country to audition for stuff that they, they had stopped doing that by this point. And she, oh, he, she's with him. And they would say, bring him in for that loser. You know, bring him in for that, you know, that guy. He'd be good for that. And so then I kind of got back in, you know. And um, we got a, we got a sad guy we're looking for. Yeah, you know, we got the the mopey guy. Uh, so uh, who quips? He occasionally quips. Occasionally, you know, if you give him some words. Um, so I got back in, and then there was one pilot season where I just nothing happened. So I I told myself I'm going to take every episodic job that comes along. And in one season, I did nine episodics and one pilot. And it was great. It's like having a steady job because like every other week I was doing something different, you know. And I had I had a lot of fun doing that. And then I got a job that shot in Mexico City, a series that didn't go anywhere. I mean, they aired it, but it just, it was called Persons Unknown and it uh, remained unknown. Uh, and then um, Mireille got uh, the killing uh, right when she got pregnant with our our twelve year our now twelve year old daughter, and uh, so for a while I was Mister Mom, because I'd go with the baby and me Ray to the set in Vancouver. She'd go away for an hour and a half or whatever and do a setup, and she'd come back. She'd feed the baby on one side and pump the other side out and hand the baby back to me, and that's how we did that whole first season of the killing. And it, you know, it was great. I was like, yeah, it's her time, you know, and. Um, then little by little, I started getting these jobs, like that job with Gina Davis. And it was off that, while I was doing that job, that I got succession. It just kind of fell in my lap. So uh, it was a great stroke of luck. I mean, it's funny because I think that each portion of your career, you had to find that lane, right? Like in the Ferris Bueller days, you had to learn how to deal with being a guy that looks 10 years younger than you were yeah. in in this in the spin city days you had to figure out how to credibly be a believable adult man on screen uh and it involved a brush cut and a lot of uh rude cutting remarks yes um and then you know now in your like late 50s and early 60s you are able to use those same those same qualities that made you a sweet guy when you were, you know, a sweet teen when you were 25 or whatever, <laughs> really, really serve you as like a, as like an older man, right? Like you're not going to, you're not going to be, uh, uh, you know, you're not going to be the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff in a, no, that's not going to happen. Independence day five, but like, this is like the, what a wonderful venue for, yeah, well, I don't think I. I don't think um, I found a lane. I think the lane found me. You know, but uh, look, however they want to use me, I'm just happy to still be in the game. Um, I enjoy it. I actually don't like watching myself. Uh, I do watch myself on Succession because the show is so good, and I want to see what all my friends did. But uh, oftentimes, I, I'm happy to leave the work on set. I love the doing of it. I love being on the set. I, I love, I love everything about it. But um, 
but I did. I have watched Succession just because it's so damn good. I I, I find it very emotionally trying. <laughs> it really, I feel like I've the, the whole gone series. through a yeah, yeah, gone through a laundry ringer, a mangler. Do you feel like you need to take a shower? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's so it's so really funny. But I was like, I did not ever expect that they would make a more intense version of the thick of it. Like <laughs> I was like when I was there, I was, but now it's, yeah, yeah. But they're just that good. They're just that good. I um. Can do you do you like go home to your wife and say you you won't believe you won't believe the sentence that was in the script today? Oh yeah, I mean uh, some of the crazy stuff that I've had to say or uh, some of the other uh, put downs. There was uh, uh, the character of Nate says to Siobhan about Tom, uh, he's a corn-fed <laughs> basic from Hockey Town. I mean <laughs> that's poetic. It's just a beautiful way to really slam someone down to the ground uh, it's endless you know it's 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 endless well a lot of good ones come uh, out of tom's mouth um or, or you know siobhan said about me you know the first pancake it's just you know so amazingly rude and and so funny wonderfully funny alan ruck i sure appreciate your time thank you for coming on bullseye it's my pleasure thank you alan ruck you can watch him on the fourth and final season of succession which is airing now on HBO. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although I am just back from greater Mexico City, Mexico, which uh, is just an awesome, awesome place. I will, t- I, let, me, let me say this. If you're in Mexico City... A deeply underrated museum is the Museo Franz Mayer, which has just an unbelievable collection of decorative arts, and then also has two great shows up right now. One of the uh, incredible Mexican designer Carla Fernandez and her gorgeous clothes, and a big collection of design by women that is so cool. There's a lot of great museums in Mexico City, but that one really blew my mind. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We got booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Our thanks to The Go Team... One of the great bands, uh, go see them in concert. Our thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Uh, they both agreed to share that song with us. We're always grateful. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Follow us. Uh, we will share all of our interviews with you. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.